From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. It was said about him a few years ago that Kaushik Basu had a CV that ran into 23 pages. Since then of course the economist who recently received the Humboldt Research Award for excellence through an entire career has only added more reams to that CV. Basu who teaches economics at Cornell has just come out with a book about his stint in the UPA2 as its chief economic advisor and as the chief economist with the World Bank. The book is titled somewhat blandly Policy Makers Journal. What the title doesn't reveal is how vividly sketched and wickedly funny Koshik Basu's diary is. He uses an anthropologist's eye and a satirist's pen to create a portrait from the seat of power in Delhi. In this interview, he speaks about the importance of big ideas for government, that there is actually less corruption in the higher reaches of governments than is otherwise perceived. and he also rightly recalls that one time when he chaired an entire meeting without quite knowing what it was all about for our listeners can you sketch out a little bit about how somebody who has always been an academic gets thrown into the hurly burly of indian politics at the at you have a very uh, as the chief economic advisor you had a very interesting position in the sense that you were in the thick of things and yet you had your sort of uh, ticket back to cornell booked in a way the fact that i had a fall back option for me it made a difference for the job i was doing i think i was doing a better job if i ha- was doing a job where i had to cling on to that job no matter what happened i i would give a certain kind of advice which would sound nice to the ears of my bosses whereas there were occasions when the advice i was giving was not pleasant at all for the people who were getting that advice and i did use that i thought you know i'm i'm not that i'm braver than other people but i have an option luckily which i enjoy i love being a professor i love teaching i'll go back to that so that did make a difference i feel really the main reason was the prime minister then manmohan singh why i got in i barely knew pranab mukherjee i didn't know him and it was the prime minister's i think this is what happened in the background i don't know it was his wish to bring me in which got me in and what is there in the diary i've recorded is uh, for me that day is a very very dramatic day for me 9th of august 2009 on the 9th of august my wife and i were packing up because the next day we were flying back to america back to my job when a phone call came uh, this was from vinnie mahajan joint secretary in the prime minister's office called and you know those days i had no connection with government so it was completely out of the blue and the joint secretary called from the prime minister's office very quickly got to the point and said the prime minister wants to know if you will consider being the chief economic advisor to the indian government and i told vinny that look i'm leaving tomorrow for america so you'll have to fit it in within uh, these 24 hours she called back in 10 minutes said i just spoke to the prime minister the only thing we can do but please do it tomorrow on your way to the airport pack up your bags and all come to seven race course road the prime minister will talk to you so i went there and had a wonderful conversation and um, uh, dr singh stressed to me that you know i just want ideas to be brought to the table so i i do want the outsiders ideas new ideas to be brought to the table and he said i've once done this job myself and i want to raise this job 
to a higher profile because I think ideas is where what runs. Uh, he was almost echoing John Maynard Keynes's famous remark: "What uh, makes for a better country, greater country." Mm-hmm. By the end of that 35-40 minute conversation where he detailed what he wanted me to do, I actually did say that I want a regular contact with you, that I want to bring some ideas to you. And he said that was assured. Then I virtually said that I'll do it. And he also said that, look, India has procedures. So just because the prime minister wants, it doesn't mean it's done. We will have to go through that. But yes, I do want you. And I went off to Cornell. It was a weird two, three months because... American security came to check out my background and all sort of experience I've never had <laughs> in the Department of Economics. Then I joined 8th or 9th of December uh, 2009 into a totally different uh, life for uh, me, of course, uh, from that day itself. You said the Prime Minister asked you for ideas. Which of your ideas do you think was your one big idea? Because I know, and I'll talk to you about it, your corruption idea sort of was not entirely welcome. But which of your ideas you think where you really kind of made a difference? Uh, During my time, food inflation was very high. Overall inflation was around 10%. Um, Food inflation was high. Overall inflation, wholesale price inflation was high, but not as high as it is right now. Right now it's the highest in 13 years, but it was high. Food inflation was high and we were all very concerned. So within the first sort of, I forget now, 10 days, 14 days, the prime minister called a meeting, seven, eight of us, not a big team at all, small, cozy meeting where he said, look, I mean, we have to do about something about the food inflation to bring it down. And um, there I uh, very sheepishly gave some detailed ideas about, and I was actually using ideas from mathematical economics on release of food grain, the technology of release, which dampens the price maximum. Because you you do know, of course, that Food Corporation of India holds food stocks. And like in the United States, the United States holds oil reserves. If petrol prices shoot up, the United States will intervene, release those reserves to dampen the prices. India has a similar policy with respect to food. But how you release, which point you release, etc., can make a huge difference. I remember this was a very awkward meeting because it was a technical advice and I was giving it a bit sheepishly feeling I'm an outsider. My language was sounding too nerdy, bookish. But I think the prime minister picked it up that there was something over here. And then it took time. India, everything takes time. Some two months later, that was being executed. That's time. I think it made a difference. I mean, inflation, you know, once it starts and whether it's this government or that government, it's the same problem. Inflation, once it starts, very difficult to bring it down hurriedly because you'll damage the main economy mm. trying to rush it down. Mm. So you have to steer the path down and inflation was high, but it was steadily coming down uh, from then onwards. I think that played a role. The other one, very important idea, but it was not me alone. There was a bunch of people who were pushing for that. One area of economics where the knowledge of economists is as well defined and described as an engineer's knowledge is auctions. The design of an auction is a technical exercise. Auctions can be designed in many different ways. Mathematical economics has ways of designing auctions. So when the 3G spectrum was to be sold, initially the government's idea was to do it the usual way. Bureaucrats will sit down, decide how much value this is. Then you look around for buyers and you sell it at that. And I remember for a particular segment of it, 
The valuation was done by experts. I don't even know what uh, spectrum means, but I, as an economist, I was looking into the details. Valuation was $7 billion can be earned by the government. So if we really went by that, we would have sold it for $7 billion. I was beginning to push that, look, let's not have bureaucrats value this and sell it. Put it to auction. The auction will determine what the value of this is. But auction has to be designed very carefully because people can cheat you in an auction. This was actually one of the best designed auctions. It's like American auction, the Indian auction took place. And what bureaucrats thought was $7 billion turned out to be $15 billion wow. because the auction. So government got a lot of return, raised controversies about what we had done in the past, but it was a breakthrough idea. So these were the small ideas and there were others taking place. And I really believe that you, you can't go crazy. These things have to be thought through very carefully, but can make a big difference. One reason why India was really in the global forefront was despite being a developing country, emerging economy, the world could see that actually absolutely first-rate thinking was going in and India had taken off in a remarkable way. So that's interesting because, you know, when I read the book and it's published in 2021 and you're talking about events which were not that long ago, barely a decade ago, and reading it today, I, I feel like you're describing a different era. You were at the cusp of the big change that was going to come, the political change, cultural change. In the thick of it, did you have a sense of what was coming? Um, uh, no, I have to say. So this did catch me by surprise. Um, I did know, of course, there were uh, trouble beginning to break out. Inflation, though now inflation is higher, as I'm pointing out, people get very restless with inflation because inflation is one thing where you don't have to wait for government data. You know it when you go to the market. And I would get phone calls from relatives in Calcutta immediately after going to a market calling saying, what are you people doing? There's so much inflation as if we can just bring it down all over India. So that annoys people. So that was happening. Corruption scandals had broken out. Those were troubling. So I knew there was trouble in the air. But it is true that there would be this kind of a change. I did not think so because I'll tell you just to go back to a little bit of history. India made choices, right or wrong, who knows? I do like the choices. For me, an open democracy, inclusive society, it's almost the model of a very successful advanced Western economy. India jumped into very early. If you look at 1940s of the newly independent countries, most within 10 years, five years, there would be a coup, there would be a change of yeah. government, dictatorship, end. India was a remarkable experiment, which is not non-controversial because India's growth did not do well in the early years. So there were many people saying that India has made a mistake. Mistake or not, that was history. India's institutions had become very strong. Growth did pick up eventually. And by the time we are talking, when I'm in government, and this has nothing to do with me, from about 2003, India's growth was looking just phenomenal. 2003 to 2011 is India as a front runner. So the political institutions, India had made the investment rightly or wrongly early. Mm. So I was feeling really that this is a very good juncture for India. Institutions in place, which is looking like modern Western institutions, Western, Western, I, I don't mean in the sense of geographic Western, there are Asian countries, East Asia, where there were advanced institutions. So in that sense, India had those institutions in place. Growth was taking place. So I thought we are now going to remain on that. And I have to say, I don't know the details of what's happening, but when you look at the sort of growth numbers, 
rise in poverty, youth unemployment going sky high. No, I never thought we would get into this so quickly. You describe yourself as a as a very uh, by temperament an optimistic person. And in fact, in the book, at one point, you write that you think you need anger management because you have so little of it. But the book is remarkably bereft of of the tensions or the pulls and the pushes, the unpleasant things that would no doubt have happened. For instance, the retrospective Vodafone tax that you know you say that you were not in the know of, even though you were in the, in the ministry. So. Was that a conscious decision to keep that out? Uh, no, uh, there are two things to it. There were bad moments, and some of them you'll see that the Vodafone was a very upsetting moment for me. It was not the biggest decision, but it was a decision where I felt I should have been in the know. I still don't know what had happened, but as I mentioned in my diary, just before that, I had done a short travel. And it is not demonetization. It's a part of India where a decision has taken place. The finance minister had clearly worked on this. And I suddenly saw the decision taken. So that was a bit upsetting. There were other times when there were, and they are in the diary very soon after joining. I remember I was finding the politics of it totally upsetting. And I went to see the prime minister saying that, Prime Minister, I'm not sure this is the right job for me. And I, I can't take so much politics. I do want to give ideas, take it or leave it. I want to put them. And he did play a role that time calming down. He said that, you know, some of the people you have to work with. Pranab Mukherjee was for me a new person. He was a political person, intelligent person, very well-read scholarly, but a political person. I'm not that political. But the prime minister said that, look, I mean, when it is an important idea, bring it straight to me and be assured that the people I interact with, I keep a close contact. So I, I am keeping, you will be fine. And I'm around. And that really played a role very early. And after that, Minal, all I can think of is it is my temperament. There were some bad days like uh, in my diary that's there when in Washington, I made some statements which blew up. And that was a time when my wife was calling from India. She was very tense, saying, what have you said? What have you done? That day I was tense and upset, but I'm just lucky. I mean, this has nothing to do with me. I'm temperamentally, I don't get very upset. In the World Bank, there were some days, dramatic days, very upsetting in the World Bank. I would walk out of my building on H Street, Pennsylvania Avenue. I did toss things out of my mind uh, as I walked out. I was going home, the office work was done. And I really feel that I'm blessed. I'm just lucky that I have that temperament. I reason with myself. I talk inside my head, almost like playing with someone else. I feel people do too little of that. Occasionally, when you're upset, you have to stop yourself and talk to yourself. Could you, for our listeners, give a sense of, of Dr. Manmohan Singh? I mean, you write about him in very yeah. fulsome terms. Yeah. And also, Pranam Mukherjee, that you're two bosses. Very, very happily. Um, you know, um, um, first, about Pranam Mukherjee, I can tell you. Pranam Mukherjee was, for me, uh, a new experience. I, I didn't know him earlier. One thing which did make it a pleasure interacting with him is his scholarly memory. On that, in government, I don't think there was anyone else who was at that Pranam Mukherjee's level. So Pranam Mukherjee, most of the time, it was political discussions and political economy. And of course, I worked very closely with him. Just before the budget, we would be there every evening, several hours, briefing him, bringing every detail. So it was good. He did, actually, I have to say, 
give me a lot of respect. And I'm not saying it in a sort of stupid way of wanting respect, but I had come because I would bring the best ideas and don't think of me as playing politics because I did not play politics. And I think he realized that. So though he would lose his school occasionally on different people with me, it was just very uh, smooth all the way through. So in the end with Pranab Mukherjee, and I'm saying in the end because right at the beginning, it was not all smooth, but it was just very good. And his scholarship was for me a pleasure. I note this in the diary meeting with uh, Chancellor Osborne, uh, the British Treasury Chancellor. Osborne had a team of uh, three, four of us people and Pranab Mukherjee had three, four of us. And Pranab Mukherjee most casually was referring to old British budgets and giving details and laughing. I already forget which budget. Some budget was the 1952, the British budget, and start laughing. And I'm pretty sure Osborne didn't have a clue as to what Pranab Mukherjee was talking about. So all that was fun and enjoyable. With Manmohan Singh, my book has a lot of uh, praise for him. Someone asked that, is it a bit of a hero worship? Short answer to that is no. I, I dislike hero worship, so I don't do that. I like to question everyone. But I do feel absolutely exceptional person in government. And the reason is people with that kind of a temperament usually don't manage to reach so high in politics uh, because you have to be wheeling and dealing to get to where you're getting. He did not do that at all, literally zero. And there, some of the credit goes to others who kept him there because he, he could have been pushed out of there because he did not do any wheeling and dealing to stay over there. With him, every time in the middle of some political crisis, I would go sit down. The conversation would immediately go to details of uh, what can we do to get the growth back up? What can we do to get the inflation down? An immediate discussion of that. And you saw that that's his obsession. And also, very, very honest, that India is slowing down. I've had outside visitors taken. I've discussed the Nobel laureate, uh, Michael Spence, when I took him to meet uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh. Manmohan Singh was saying critical things about the Indian economy under his charge, that these things are going wrong. I don't know what to do. That was his person. And for me, that was an instinctively I took to that. And that stark honesty, which is very rare in politics, he grew on me and I appreciated very greatly his integrity. You have a slightly different view about corruption than most people. And, and you say... To use too blunt an instrument to control corruption can end up damaging legitimate business and exchange. When you heard about demonetization, yeah. what was your first uh, sort of instinct reaction? The demonetization, right at the beginning, my antennas went up and I felt it's a big mistake that is taking place. So unlike others, like the lockdown, I can come down to lockdown. When it first happened, I thought it's the right move. I feel the backup was not there, which is very unfortunate. But Demonetization, as soon as it happened, I felt it's a mistake that has been made. And I was wondering, uh, is the central bank involved? Have they been consulted? Because they would know what it does. And, you know, this is government of India later on putting out the list of countries which have done similar demonetization. It's a shocking list. It has uh, Venezuela. It has North Korea. It has Iraq. India was completely in the wrong cluster. And that I realized, and to go to the technical point, which you just uh, mentioned in my book, I say this very carefully, you know, there are many kinds of uh, corruption which are dreadful, and you want to take them out of the system. But removing corruption is like surgery, where you're trying to take a tumor out, where you have to be very careful not to damage the healthy tissues around the tumor. 
No wonder surgery is a very, very fine uh, science that you mm. do that. Corruption control, and I think Manmohan Singh, who's just complete person of integrity, wouldn't tolerate corruption, was aware of that. That we want to take it out, but you have to do it very carefully that you don't bring the economy to a halt. So I feel demonetization was a mistake. And the price we are paying now that from 2016, it's the slowdown in economic growth is not just in the pandemic. Pandemic, we've slowed down massively. But the slowdown began in 2016, after which every year's growth is slower than the previous year's growth. Never happened before for so many years in India in succession. And I think that demonetization triggered that off. At one point in the book, you mentioned that uh, you are not, well, of course, India's a there's a lot of corruption, but you personally were not aware of too many bureaucrats or politicians being personally corrupt. But this is the time when UPA actually, I mean, it, UPA too came down largely on the back of corruption. Were you sort of uh, being oblivious? There are two things which I point out in my diary. One is corruption there, but it's not as big as people outside think. I've got friends and relatives very close to me saying, isn't it true that all these bureaucrats are corrupt? Answer is no. In fact, a vast majority of bureaucrats are not corrupt. But there are some. So this has to be kept in mind. I think the layperson misunderstands on that. Number two, I never saw a corrupt deal being cut in my presence. It's not that I've hidden something from my diary. Never saw that. There I feel most corrupt people are intelligent enough to know that I've come from the outside world. I'll go back to the outside world and who knows, maybe this chap keeps a diary which will come out one day. So they had kept it away from me. I'm sure the few corrupt things that were happening were kept away from me and corruption was there, despicable thing and we need to weed it out, but not as widespread as people made it out to be. It became a drumbeat, it became a political thing. And like if you look at inflation, once the drumbeat starts up, inflation was high. Again, you're trying to bring it down. But as I'm pointing out, inflation right now, wholesale price inflation is bigger than what was then. But that drumbeat is not as big. You mentioned earlier that when you joined the government, that there was time the India story was at the forefront. And, you know, we were kind of making huge strides uh, and, and ideas were welcomed. One would also argue that in the current dispensation, also, they have many ideas. Whether they work or not is a separate thing. But it's not for dearth of ideas. Yeah, so I, I actually, I agree. There were sort of new moves being made. Ideas are there. But, you know, ideas, economics is a very strange subject. This book is not so much about economics. My other one, which I wrote, is about details. It's a very strange subject where there are some parts of economics. It is really almost guesswork. You don't quite know what the right policy is. I, as an economist, I'm taking in a lot of data. I'm taking in a lot of the literature, but it's largely guesswork. It's largely intuition. So when you interact with a politician, a politician could well feel that I can do that. What's, what's there to that? It's intuition. And it's virtually true. But there are parts of economics which are like engineering science. Auction design is one of them. And there are many other fields. So e economics being this strange admixture, it's very easy to think that I'll think of a big idea, I'll put it into practice, it'll work. But as an economist, you would get warned the demonetization, I'm sure if you had consulted any good economist who's not just out there to please you, you would have said, don't do that. It's not the route that you go. Corruption is dreadful. But you don't do a tumor surgery by removing everything around the tumor. You have to go for the tumor. 
So ideas are there, but the execution is lacking. So either the bureaucracy is being completely obsequious and not objecting to some of these. Look, the lockdown you mentioned, the lockdown, when it first happened, I was in India that time. And I felt pleased when the announcement came that India has acted quickly. The details were troubling me right in the beginning that you have to be a bit careful. You're locking down the economy totally. You have to be careful. But I said, okay, at least a very quick move. Within a week, 10 days, it became clear that the biggest sector that would be affected by this, no thought had been given. The um, uh, migrant workers. And now we know that uh, somewhere from 23 million to 40 million people were scattered far from a lockdown. They were all over the country walking. That immediately made me feel that this was a big idea which had not gone through the kind of scrutiny uh, that you put. I'll give you historical examples, uh, nothing to do with India. I'm fascinated by the Cuban missile crisis, uh, which was uh, USSR and United States. Yes, they almost came to... Almost came to blowing up the whole world if they had an exchange. The reason why the United States came out of that victor, victor is the wrong word for a nuclear uh, situation, but dampened down, the Russians had to pull the missiles out, so they got their way, is I feel 13 days of brainstorming at a level which that book is a thriller because Kennedy was secretly recording it. He had begun recording Oval Office uh, meetings, which his advisors did not know. If you read that, you'll see modern game theory being brought in, ideas from Thomas Schelling being brought in, military details being brought in. And in the end, I doubt Khrushchev was doing that. He was sitting there with maybe two, three advisors, taking bullish, strong decisions. United States wiped it out, but it was just through a idea, but ideas which were getting a huge amount of scrutiny. It was from morning to evening. That book is a thriller book to read. And I feel India, right now, the ideas it's bringing up, too many mistakes are being made. So the damage being done to the economy is becoming huge as a consequence. And I wish people are brought in so that the ideas are vetted out before they are put forward. I know you're not advising the government, but if they were to ask you to give one specific advice, what would that be? Those, oh, these one specific ones, uh, I mean, I have difficulty with what would I give because uh, I'll tell you broadly what I would give is uh, in economic policies, a lot of it is to do with detail. And I'll give you one kind of detail is fiscal injection. When a country begins to slow down, this is the old Keynesian idea. You just give buying power into people's hands, whether it is because you make a building and workers get money through that or whether you dig holes and fill them up, Keynes said just give buying power in people's hands. That actually works in a general recession. But a pandemic-induced recession which we are in is a very strange one. In some sectors, there is a lack of demand. Very little demand for hotels, for airlines, for hospitality, for tourism. So if you give more buying power to people, the demand for these things will go up a little bit. But you can't do that in a blanket fashion because there are other sectors where there is a shortage, excess demand, hospitals, health, vaccines. This sector has got excess demand. So one sector with excess supply, one sector with excess demand. If you inject liquidity blindly into the system, you are not going to get the effect which you get in a general recession. So you have to curate the intervention. But that's a matter of detail. But bring in any good team of economists, they will work that out for you. I feel that's not happening enough, so I would give that advice. Fiscal policy needs much greater curation. Where are you injecting where you're not? Not happening. The other one is a broader one, and I don't know whether 
the leadership will appreciate. Politics has to have a domain. You can't bring that in, into everything. Every economic policy, if you do the policy that will make you politically popular, you will begin to make mistakes, you'll polarize society. Uh, one class of work which I appreciate greatly is written by political scientists, philosophers, and economists, the role of trust in society. Trust sounds very fuzzy, mm. but trust plays a big role. Societies that are trusting societies have grown well is an argument that Francis Fukuyama made. And then there are some Israeli economists who did very clever research, I can't give you any detail at all, in laboratories of groups where they inject trust in a very clever way and groups without trust. And then you see how the groups are performing and the trusting groups begin to do better very quickly. Trust is very important. And I feel in India, trust is being eroded because society is getting so polarized. So this will be a general advice I will give that, you know, you can't cut up the country. You can rule the country by cutting it up. Colonial leaders have done that. But you can't have the country prosper if you cut it up and polarize the country. I don't quite know how to correct that, but I would point this out. You know, there are so many moments of humor in the book. There is a lot of ridiculousness in the government, right? Could you just, Absolutely. just for people who haven't read the book, could you just recount one instance which was, uh, uh, which like secretly amused you so much? The one which uh, it's funny in a certain way, funny and chilling in a certain way is very early. I write that you're made to do so many meetings that you're not on top of uh, them. And I recount this GBS meeting, which was for me, in the beginning, it was a chilling meeting, but then it became hilarious when I came out. Very busy day. I went to the planning commission. There was a meeting over there. I had done, this was my early days. I was still on, not on top of things. I came back and my personal secretary ran in and saying, you've got another meeting in, in the finance ministry. And I thought I'll go to the meeting and sit down quietly in the background. Whatever the meeting, I didn't know what it was about. So I was rushing up. And the convention in India, which also I had just picked up, that when you enter a meeting, if people get up, it means you are the chair of the meeting. So I was slipping into that meeting to sit in the background when everyone jumped up. So I said, I've had it. This is a meeting where I'm chairing and I don't know what it's about. And the meeting was about GBS, gross budgetary support, which those days was a very important topic. This is within weeks of mining, joining government. And I didn't know what GBS stood for. And I was saying someone is soon going to use the full term and I will pick up what the discussion, what I'm I chairing. Luckily, I was just chairing. So not that I had to give any details of that. I was listening. But it was such a common term in the ministry that it continued to remain GBS, GBS, everyone fighting over GBS. And I don't know what they're fighting over. And I did not find out. I conducted the full one hour meeting without knowing what GBS is, came out and then had to get the details. And after that, of course, my life for months was GBS because that was a very big topic those days. Today's episode was produced by Joshua Thomas and Jairad Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TUI+, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcasts at timesinternet.in.